a Bible and go with me to John 17. This is our second Sunday in this uh, amazing prayer by Jesus. Uh, Last week was really foundational to all the uh, rest of the chapter that we'll cover. We saw last week in verses 1 to 5 that Jesus came on a God-glorifying mission and that this particular mission was rooted in a pre-temporal plan. It happened, uh, this, this plan was put in place before the creation of the world. It involved God's Son coming to, on a God-glorifying mission to give sinners eternal life in the presence of an all-glorious Christ. That's the picture painted from Jesus' prayer in verses 1 to 5. And what you're going to see is that Jesus doesn't leave that picture behind as he keeps praying. Rather, that initial prayer gets interwoven with with several other themes as he goes along. And, And one of those themes that we'll look at this morning is God's preservation of his disciples. God's preservation of his disciples. This theme is massively important for us to get as Christians because, let's face it, we are weak and feeble people. Our resolve to be more faithful in in this discipline or or that commitment often wavers. We grow tired in the fight of faith. We get hurt and sometimes put out by the demands of love. Love. Relationships become exhausting and we begin toying with the sinful avoidance of our brothers and sisters. Our ability to think straight gets tangled with all kinds of false logic and self-justification. Our affections are at times won over by the world's passions. We sing today and by Monday we're ready to throw in the towel. As Robert Robinson rightly observed in that old hymn, Come Thou Fount, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We are weak people. Even on our best days, the Bible is quick to warn us. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, you're not strong. You're not capable of resisting idolatry on your own. You're vulnerable to falling away. And not only are we weak, but the world we live in is in rebellion to the Lord we follow. It's filled with devilish assaults against our souls. Dark powers and principalities oppress us in relentless attempts to quench whatever flicker of faith remains when we are down. The world throws temptations at us left and right to draw us away from our Savior. And then even the creation itself is broken and subject to all kinds of futility that discourage us and grieve us and wound us and cause us to doubt whether there's hope, whether there's really an end to the tsunamis and the cancer and the planes falling from the sky and the unjust bloodshed and the terror. Jesus told us it would be this way. Lawlessness, he said, will increase and the love of many people will grow cold. So how are you, weak and feeble Christian, how are you going to endure? 
How are you going to keep the faith uh, when the next terrorist enters your building? What will keep you trusting when, when you lose your own dad unexpectedly? How will you keep clinging to Jesus when your own sin and the brokenness of this world would seek to tear you away from Him? How are you going to make it to the end and be saved? The answer to your perseverance as a Christian isn't found in you. And it isn't found ultimately in anything that you can do for yourself. Rather, your perseverance rests wholly on God's preservation of you. We see this reflected in the way Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 12. Let me read them to you. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know that in truth, that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." Father in heaven, I pray that you would use these words to encourage our fight of faith. Uh, that where we are weak, this morning you would make us strong. Uh, that where we have doubted your keeping graces, that all doubts would be removed and we would have further confidence that what you began in us, you will bring to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So there's one main petition in verses 6 to 12. And we see it midway through verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. That's the main Petition. Everything else around verse 11 is simply supporting Jesus' request. Uh, so what I want to do is show you what makes up the foundation of your preservation as Jesus' disciples. And there are at least six stones in our text that, that help make up this foundation. Our first stone is this. The Son's complete revelation of the Father. The Son's complete revelation of the Father. Jesus speaks of this in verse 6 as the manifestation 
of the Father's name. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, God's name in the Old Testament was bound up with who he is, uh, what he's like, why he acts the way he does. Uh, His name wasn't a mere label like names tend to be in our culture. God's name revealed who he is. For him to reveal his name to you was for him to to bring you into deeper intimacy with, with his personality. To know God's name was to experience his, his character, to, to sense the very weight of his glorious reputation. In fact, at one point in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses cries out for, for God to, to show him his glory. And the Lord then responds to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Note the the response of the Lord to Moses' prayer. To see the Lord's glory is to see all of his goodness made known in the proclamation of his name. And sure enough, the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he goes and he passes before Moses and declares, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. In other words, for God to proclaim his name was for him to reveal something about himself. In the situation with Moses, the revelation of the glory of all of his goodness and holiness and justice So when Jesus says, I have manifested your name to these people, he's essentially saying that he has revealed God to them. Everything they've witnessed through his works, everything they have heard in his words, reveals the Father completely. He brings them face to face with God's glory. Now, the way this becomes foundational to Jesus' petition and our preservation is like this. This revelation is part and parcel to Jesus' mission of gathering a people out of the world for the Father. And he's essentially now telling the Father, I'm not only done with my revealing work on earth, it's so complete that these eleven now belong to you. They've come to know you through this revelation I have given to them. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus' complete revelation of the Father is enough for them to be bound to the Father. Jesus' revelation is what binds people to the Father once they embrace it. There's nothing lacking in Jesus' revelation of the Father's name. When you approach God through the way He reveals Himself in Jesus, you come to know the truth. And the truth about God's name then serves your perseverance. That's why Jesus doesn't just say, Father, keep them. He says, Father, keep them in your name. 
That's where they'll find true safety and protection. That's where they'll actually know and experience God. Jesus' revelation is complete. It's sufficient for, our, for their relationship with God and for our relationship with God. A second stone to our preservation. The Father's ownership of the disciples. Now this comes out in a couple of ways. Verse 9 says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see, he hasn't got to his main petition just yet, that the Father keep them. He's still building up to it. And here he's reinforcing what makes his prayer for these disciples so unique, so effectual. They belong to the Father. The Father has taken ownership of them. They are yours, he says. Not everyone in the world enjoys this privilege, but only those that the Father owns. Now, if verse 9 is all we had, we might be inclined to think that the Father's ownership began only when when the Father gave them to the Son within history. That is to say, He gave them to the Son only after the Son Himself entered history, revealed the Father's name, and the disciples believed. They came to faith. Verses 6 to 9 basically say just that. And such an idea is even supported by the way Jesus can speak of the Father giving Him a people in chapter 6 as the Father draws people to the Son. It happens in history. But our passage presses us to go even further than that, doesn't it? Look look more closely at verse 6. He says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. If Jesus is talking about the Father giving the disciples to the Son after He manifested God's name to them within history, in what sense can He also say, Yours they were? In some real sense, they belonged to the Father prior to God's revelation in Christ. That sense is picked up in verses 2 and 24, which we tackled last week. It's picked up in chapter 10, when the shepherd has other sheep he must bring, and they must listen to his voice. It's picked up in chapter 11, verse 52, when God already has children who are scattered abroad that need to be gathered in. It's picked up by Paul in Ephesians 1, 4, when God chose people in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's, It's picked up again by Peter when he calls the church. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In that sense, in the sense of divine election, God took ownership of them before the foundation of the world. Yours they were. In other words, we're not chosen because we believe, we believe because we are chosen. Quite apart from anything in us, the Father chose us out of the world to belong to Him. And we should just be absolutely stunned by this as believers. And then Jesus is making this divine ownership part of the basis of His prayer for our preservation. He's basically asking the Father to preserve the people He chose before history and brings to the Son within history. 
they belong to you. This is, in other words, this, this is your plan from eternity. You set your affections on these people. Keep them faithful to me. So Jesus' prayer winds up being consistent with the Father's purpose of election before the foundation of the world and the way that purpose of election is then realized within history. Third stone of our preservation. The Father and Son's unity and mission. The Father and Son's unity in mission. We just looked at the Father's ownership of the disciples. Now look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. There's unity between the Father and Son in their taking ownership of us. And this shouldn't surprise us after seeing their unity come up so often in the Gospel of John. I mean, part of the main thrust of John's Gospel has been to reveal Jesus' divinity through His unity with the Father in mission. So on the one hand, we get, we get several places speaking to their, their intra-Trinitarian unity. I used that word last week. So we were like, intra-what? It's... It's just speaking about the unity, the communion between the persons of the Godhead, quite apart from anything else in the created order. So, so we get several places that, that this is highlighted. The, uh, chapter 3, the Father loves the Son and gives all things into His hands. Uh, chapter 5, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He's doing. Ch- uh, verse 24 here in this prayer, the, because the Father loved me before the foundation of the world. We get these little snippets of their intra-Trinitarian unity. But then all these comments about their intra-Trinitarian unity get fleshed out in terms of mission for His people. So then he starts saying things like this, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. So there's mission involved. The Father has given Him a, a mission. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What is this work? Well, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So so you see their unity being played out there in terms of Jesus comes for the Father's sheep. The Father's given him sheep. He's come to die for them. To lay his life down for them. So the same sort of thing is getting fleshed out here. It's unthinkable, in fact, it's downright heretical to think that God the Son would do anything other than what God the Father has purposed. Or to think that God the Father would do anything less than what He's given the Son to accomplish. That would be to put the persons of the Trinity completely at odds with one another. Rather, Jesus builds His prayer on His eternal, unceasing, unbreakable unity between the Father and Son. All mine are yours and yours are mine. This is why I want you keeping them. And let's add another stone to our foundation. The Father's love to glorify the Son. He says it there at the end of verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Meaning Jesus is already glorified in them because they're following Him. 
He came to do the Father's work, that of gathering out the Father's elect. Now these disciples are following him and fulfilling that purpose. And in this sense, he's glorified. His, his glory is being displayed as, as the Father's children who are scattered abroad come to the Son. And this is exactly what the Father wants. This is what he's passionate about. This is the purpose he ordained for all of history. To climax in the magnification of Jesus' glory for all peoples. Just look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The Father's eternal love for the Son issued forth in a plan to spread the enjoyment of His Son's glory among a people. And if you recall from verses 1 to 5, that plan involved the glorification of of the Son, by the Father, the Father displaying His Son's glory on the cross and then clothing His Son with glory at His ascension. So now Jesus is weaving this grand purpose for the world into His prayer for the disciples. He's basically saying, Father, keeping them will only serve to glorify Me further. Keep them loyal to Me, because when they're loyal to Me, I am glorified in them. And when I am glorified in them, you, Father, are glorified. So these things are all interwoven with one another. Stretching back to verses 1 to 5. Now for a a fifth stone. The Son's completion of the Father's mission. The Son's completion of the Father's mission. Jesus already alluded to this once in verse Uh, For I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But now this completion comes out in the sense of his departure in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. There's a sense in which he's reinforcing that his work is finished. The cross itself being in his sights. When he says, I am coming to you, he's not just speaking about his ascension. He is speaking about his pathway to the Father, which has always included the cross throughout the Gospel of John. He's essentially saying, I am coming to you through the cross. My mission will be complete, and there's nothing more they'll need that they, these disciples, will need to, to achieve for their salvation. I will have done it all when I declare from the cross, it is finished. In other words, the Father will keep them not in light of what they are going to do for Jesus. They're going to do stuff for Jesus. He's leaving them on the earth to do things for Jesus, to do mission. But his prayer isn't, Father, keep them in what they're going to do for me. His prayer is, keep them in light of what I will have finished for them. In the cross, Jesus forgives every sin, past, present, and future, for his disciples that would keep them from fellowship with the Father. In the cross, Jesus brings us reconciliation with God to all who believe. In the cross, Jesus secures all the blessings of the new covenant for his people, including... The fear of the Lord, which is placed in our hearts, that keeps us faithful to God. That keeps us from forsaking Him. 
In the cross, he also obtains every future grace we need to make it to glory. So Jesus now prays the Father to preserve us in light of his achievement. The Father's preservation coincides with Jesus' propitiation. Jesus has done everything needed to get us to glory. You see, God doesn't keep us persevering despite our sins. He keeps us because our sins have been taken away by Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Last stone, the Son's infallible work for His own. When I say His work is infallible, I mean that He'll never fail us whatsoever in all He does, because He will never fail His Father in all He does. I think this is uh, confirmed in verse 12. While I was with them, so He's speaking still about uh, all of these the Father has given to Him. While I was with these that you gave me, I kept them in your name. So he's not failing the Father in this, and by not failing the Father, he's not failing us. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. I hope you hear what he's saying, because if you don't, then you'll start wondering whether God is really able to preserve you when you look at the life of Judas. What about Judas? He was a disciple. He followed you. Is this what we're to make of your ability to keep your disciples? And the point here is no. The loss of Judas doesn't reflect poorly on God's ability to keep his own. The loss of Judas actually serves as further proof of God's resolve to keep his own. I say that because everything with Judas happened just as it was determined beforehand in Scripture. And if you want to read more about that, you can go home and read chapter 13 of John's Gospel, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus tells the disciples what Judas is going to do before he does it, and he even justifies it from Psalm 41, verse 9. And the whole point is to show God's absolute sovereignty and that Jesus is in control of everything as he lays down his life for all of God's children, all of the ones he gave to the Son. The point made here then builds on those earlier points from chapter 13, of God, those, those truths of God's sovereign plan and Jesus' control of, of all history. Jesus didn't lose any of the Father's elect. Judas's betrayal proved that he wasn't among the Father's elect. And when Jesus brings this out in his prayer, he's making the point that that his mission is an infallible one. His mission never fails, it always fulfills. Even in the betrayal of Judas, Jesus was working to save all his father's elect. In this case, the eleven disciples. But by the time we reach verse 20, it includes multitudes who will also believe the disciples' testimony. He kept these eleven for a different purpose. He kept them so that they might serve and join the multitude of peoples, enjoying Jesus' glory forever, just like the Father had planned. And this, too, becomes all the more reason to, to pray for the Father to keep them. 
For the Father not to do so would not only set the persons of the Godhead against one another, it would also mean Jesus failed to keep the Father's will or that God wasn't able to fulfill the promises He had made beforehand in Scripture. But that's not how it turns out, especially with a trustworthy, omnipotent Father and Son united in the same mission to save us. So those are our stones that make up the foundation. All these things hold together as one unshakable foundation for our preservation. This is why theology is so important. These are the theological reasons why God guarantees the preservation of His children. It's what fuels your preaching to yourself and to others throughout the week. The Son has revealed Himself to us. The Father owns us. A trinity of persons unites to save us. The Father loves to glorify His Son through us. The Son leaves nothing undone to secure us. And the Son never makes mistakes when He redeems us. That's good news for the believer. So what might this mean? First of all, it means that our preservation unto life isn't found in ourselves or in this world. It's found in God alone, through Christ alone. How many times are we tempted to start finding securities in things that we do with our hands or things that we plan with our minds? And when that thing doesn't make us feel secure enough, we then switch to something else that we can find in this world. Or how many times have we told ourselves, if I just do this discipline a little harder and join this Bible study more frequently or start reading this book and start thinking like this, then my faith will be secure. And the truth is that we're never secure unless our hope and our only hope is in Jesus and not ourselves. Or let's put it another way. How many times do we hear the kind of theology that goes like this? Jesus made a down payment at the cross for your salvation. Now it's up to you to keep the payments. That is heresy. And yet how often is it found in our lives? How often is it the way we're tempted to live functionally, trusting in our own works and our own perfections and our own intellect and our own abilities and our own perfect parenting? I'm not saying that our striving and praying and Scripture reading and running and doing and loving and preaching are meaningless in perseverance. The Bible is very clear that these things are necessary components of our perseverance. We will not see eternal life if we do not believe and fight and pray and love. But what I am saying is that all those things must be ultimately rooted in what God does to keep us. And that's where our hope must continue to rest. That's who we must continue to trust. That's where we must continue to draw our strength Which actually leads me to another point. Our preservation isn't rooted in a perfect faith, but in a praying Savior. I can't get over how Jesus prays for these guys. When nearly the whole time we've been hearing about how much they don't understand, how much faith they lack, how prideful they really are, and how feeble their commitment to Jesus will prove when He goes to the cross. I mean, every once in a while we get a little glimmer of hope. 
Peter bursts out, you know, you are the Christ. They cry out, you have the words of eternal life. We get a little glimmer of hope. They're getting something. But for the most part, they're quite the bunch. And yet here we find Jesus praying. They have received his words. They have believed in him. What little revelation they do have, they trust it. Enough to separate them from the world and unite them to Christ. And by virtue of their connection with Jesus and all he is and does for them, he says, Father, keep them in your name. That tells me something about the patience of our praying Savior. It's not perfect faith that unites us to him. It's simply faith. And when we're united to him by Simply faith. He prays to His Father in such an effectual way that keeps us to the end. Despite our weaknesses and our, and our indwelling sin and our oftentimes foolish choices. I mean, if you just look maybe at another instance, for example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 31. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus tells the disciples, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, to have all of you eleven that are left with me. Judas is already out of the picture. These eleven are sitting there. Satan demanded to have you, that that he might sift all of you like wheat. And then he tells Peter in particular, But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's the only difference between Judas and the rest of the eleven? The only difference is Jesus' prayers for them. That the Father keep them. He keeps them. He prays for Peter in light of what he knows he's going to do. And when you turned again, that is, turned again from forsaking me three times, strengthen your brothers. So I don't know what kinds of, of days... You've been having, but I can tell you that some of mine consist of times when, I, when, when all I can see is how much I'm failing my Savior, how much sin that dwells in me that I haven't seen before and am now just learning how to fight. And those days come with questions like, how am I ever going to make this? If I can't even see all the sin inside me, how am I going to make it? Hebrews twelve fourteen says, there is a holiness that we must have, without which we will not see the Lord. (laughs) How am I going to make that if I can't even see the sin inside of my own life? How am I going to make it if something that's happening in Paris this week stirs so much fear in my soul here? Fear I thought I was over. How sweet these words are to keep me clinging to Christ. They tell me that I will not make it by my own power, but by my Savior's power and His prayers. As He calls on His Father to apply His finished work to my unfinished life. I can hold on to Him because He will never let go of me. His revelation, His election, His unity, His sovereign purpose, His infallible mission are all working for me because he is passionate to get glory from my life in the Son. And that's enough. One more thing I want to point out here. 
Notice that our preservation is not divorced from community. It is in and for community. Look at the purpose statement following Jesus' petition in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and here's the purpose, that they may be one, even as we are one. Our preservation by the Father isn't something that happens in isolation. It is something that happens in community and for community. The goal of our being kept in the Father's name is that we unite in the Father's name. All that Jesus, that we unite in all that Jesus has revealed. Being kept in God's name serves our relationship to each other. We cannot divorce the two. And and I think many of us would say yes and amen to that. But would anybody else be able to tell this about you outside of Sunday morning? Some of us want God to preserve us without community, without uniting with His church, without depending on one another. And that's just functional heresy and totally ignores God's eternal purpose to unite His people in the world that later we'll see is going to be a witness to the world that the Father has sent the Son. Perseverance is bigger than us. Might add that into your prayer life. Father, keep me in your name, right? Keep me, hold on to me, hold me fast, in order that I might be one. Just tag that on to the one with my brothers and sisters. Jesus isn't glorified by Christians who persevere in isolation from one another, but by Christians who persevere in unity with each other. And this unity is to be observed within the local church. This is why the writer of Hebrews ties our perseverance to our regular assembling together. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. He doesn't just mean Sunday morning. Don't read your culture into the text here. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Moreover, I'm hoping that many of us will grow old together in the work of the Lord here. Now, I've told people before that my family and I moved into this neighborhood for long-term pastoral labors at Redeemer. And unless God calls us overseas, we're not going anywhere We're going to die here. Okay? But point being, I'm hoping to grow old with many of you. Do you see from Jesus' prayer the sort of encouragements we can give one another as that takes place? There's so much hope here when cancer starts taking away our strength. Or when dementia or Alzheimer's sets in and starts robbing our memory. There's one story I read the other day from from another pastor about his father who was a a Christian man. Uh, The doctors found a tumor in his father's left lung that had then sown four or five lesions uh, in his skull. 
And he writes this about his dad. Over time. Calloused fingers that had once turned raw lumber into furniture and shaped simple cords on the neck of a guitar now clenched into grisly knots. Uh, Sentences once spoken with an inescapable Ozark's twang disintegrated into unaccented grunts and finally into silent liquid stares. Walking gave way to a wheelchair and wheeling a chair gave way to lifting and turning, feeding and diapering. He continues, On one of my family's long trips... To care for my father, a small voice from the, from the back seat broke in extended silence. Daddy? Yes, Skylar. It's, it's his nine-year-old daughter. What if Grandpa forgets about Jesus before he dies? Where will he go? Several seconds slipped by before I could speak past the lump that had lodged in my throat. Skylar, I finally said, what matters most is not whether Grandpa remembers Jesus, but whether Jesus remembers him. God turned, my gran- God turned Grandpa's heart to trust him many years ago, and Jesus will never forget him. There's great encouragement behind this prayer, brothers and sisters. Let us remember it as we grow old together in this work, should the Lord will I think something else it certainly says regarding our community is this. If God has so purposed to keep His disciples, even at the cost of His own Son, and keep them into eternity, how much more should we be willing to devote ourselves to one another's perseverance? Never once should a thought or attitude enter our minds like, I've just had enough of her. I'm just tired of serving him. It's just a lot of work to keep encouraging them. Are they really dealing with that again as a family? These meetings are really emotionally draining. If God has purposed to, to preserve all his own, then far be it from us to forsake any of his own. We must engage in keeping one another faithful to Jesus and preparing each other to celebrate what God Himself is preserving us for, namely eternal glory in the presence of His Son.